making it. So there could be these creative solutions, but the root issue is overproduction. One in seven um, people in the U.S. are food insecure. It's having too much because with the 40% of the food that's wasted in the U.S., we could solve food insecurity and we would still have too much food. Welcome to the Warrior Queen Project and our guest today is none other than the beautiful <laughs> Anna Sachs. And I say beautiful because beautiful inside out. Thank you, Mr. And I have known you for several years, so I can definitely vouch for that. Mm. And I really admire what you have been doing. But to introduce our audience to you, you are one of the greatest influencers on social med media. You've been exposing the country's <laughs> decadent excesses of consumerism. You've been trending on TikTok, social media, and you go by the wonderful name of the Trash Walker, which I just love. Thank so you. I would love you to share with us today some of your stories about your scavenger hunts and how did you become this amazing eco-warrior who holds big companies accountable for their actions. Oh, thank you, Mrs. Pizza. Thanks for having me. Well, it started with composting. I would say it started further than that, further back than that. Also, I, I like to bring up the fact that I didn't have student loans. And like for my generation, student loans are a huge burden for people who have them. And they can't really like take the time necessarily to figure out what they're passionate about because they have to repay them on mm -hmm. a, you know, a monthly schedule. Um, and I had financial flexibility. So I was working at an investment bank and was there for a couple of years and then really was burned out and wasn't feeling like this was aligning with what I wanted to be doing. And especially difficult when you're in that environment and making personal sacrifices constantly um, for your work. And I, I just like, it wasn't, I wasn't saving lives. And so it just felt like, why am I, I'm not saving lives. Why am I having to sacrifice my personal life then um, for what I felt like was these very artificial timelines, mm -hmm. you know, these. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I left and that was that was a privilege to be able to like to walk away and i went to a farm a jewish farming fellowship called adama and there learned about composting and so composting was my it was my north star it was like when i came back from adama i was like that's what i want to do something related to composting because i had really fallen in love with the cycle of and you also do farm to table yeah, it was a beautiful, it's a beautiful kind of closed loop system where we grow our own food and then what we don't eat, we compost and then we use that as for the finished compost as fertilizer on the farm to grow more food. And I was like, that makes so much sense. Like that. No, it does. It yeah. really does. I, you know, would love you to tell us because I personally believe that ancient cultures were doing this. Mm -hmm. And where did we lose our path? Because if ancient cultures did it, even, uh, you know, I'm 60 and I remember growing up as a child 
I didn't have access to, you know, tissues and uh, constant uh, paper. Paper was very valuable. I was told trees will be cut down. There was no saran wrap and plastic, and there was no plastic. Yeah. Everyone went shopping in cloth bags. Yeah. So I considered that great. And then when I found that, you know, everyone was using bags, we didn't think when we were 16 and 18, what are they made of? So do you think education of this next generation and going forward would change the way people would look at um, all this consumerism? Uh, yes, definitely. I I have this fun question I asked once for sixth graders, and then over Thanksgiving I asked like all my family members. Um, I was like, what is plastic made of? And people are like, plastic is made of plastic. <laughs> um, or people, are, some people are like, plastic is made of maybe trees like there's people don't understand what plastic is made of I didn't even question or know what plastic is made yeah, of. like I and said I didn't I just yeah. thought this is some magic must be good yeah you don't ask and I think people need to understand it's made from fossil fuels it's yes. made from frackings as a byproduct sometimes mm. and it's made from oil and it's also with these additive chemicals that they add to it chemicals aren't necessarily bad but the chemicals that they add are they have been linked to like um, endocrine disrupting. Yes. Um, so, and then it's what what you do is a whack-a-mole thing. So you say like, oh, BPA is no longer good. We can't include it. But then what do you replace BPA with? Um, you replace it with another chemical that's maybe not as like well-known or as regulated as BPA. So it, it is a really toxic material that I try to avoid near my food and beverages because... You know, we have we have microplastics in the human body. Everyone does. It's it, I think it's really disturbing, and that's where the argument I think comes in with plastic is the health, not not as much the environmental impact. It's more the health impact to me that is concerning of babies being born pre-polluted with microplastics, where it's in the placenta of the baby and it's on the mother's side of the placenta also, microplastics. That's frightening. It's frightening. It's in, it is in our blood. It's in our organs. And then it's also plastic. When it breaks down, it becomes nanoplastics. It just becomes plastic, but in smaller forms versus like it doesn't revert to certain elements. Um, and nanoplastics can pass through all these sorts of these barriers in your body like blood cell barriers and we just don't know a lot about it and so like that's what I think education is it's like let's talk about all these issues related to plastic and then once you know that you can decide how you want to live your life but I think that right now there isn't Maybe there is, maybe it's starting, but I don't think a lot of people are thinking about No, no, you're that. right. I don't think that level of awareness, because 40 years ago, I remember I was on a boat, you know, just looking for whales. And I remember that there were people on the boat and um, the children threw their candy wrappers in the water. Oh. Now, I got up and went there and said, you cannot do that. These fish are going to die. They've just going to choke yeah. and I was so upset and that family got mad at me that they said mind your own business oh my god and I realized everywhere I was trying to speak up it was like my kids at one point would say mom don't create waves like just mind your own business 
And I realized that it is difficult. I was minding, but I was suffering to see other people doing something that was so obvious that you shouldn't do, mm-hmm. that you talk about it. And so it, for me, I'm so happy to meet somebody like you, Anna, who has left a lucrative investment banker, cool, what people mm-hmm. think is, oh my God, Wall Street, money, to do something which is making, I can clearly see you very happy, but you are following not just your heart, you're educating, you're making a difference on this planet, you're using your Jewish culture and background to understand, you know, farm to food, what is compost. It's for me that that reflects a warrior, mm-hmm. a warrior queen who is going out to make that difference, to help educate all of us. I mean, I didn't know anything about these particles and, and it seemed even more scary, which is, you know, all these things cause cancer. Today, look at the amount of people. It's like everything, it doesn't matter what you eat or drink anymore. You're surrounded by these waves and, yeah. you know, just constant. So I would love to know more about the fact that I know you're a full-time waste consultant. How oh, I'm you... no longer. I actually left my... Really? Yeah, I left my... I was working full-time and then doing, like, the trash walker stuff on the side. And I felt like I was doing a disservice to both, to both my employer and to myself because I was I was just, like, trying to do too much. Right, right. And so last year I left... Um, but, I but you did, zero. I remember reading that, you know, you have this campaign called Donate, Don't Dump. Yeah. I would love you to tell me more because I came from India in a culture that... We recycle as far as possible mm-hmm, everything. Yeah. It's like uh, people would call me a hoarder. We were never allowed to throw mm-hmm. anything. And we were constantly, even older clothes were given to someone and given to someone. I never had somewhere to garbage. It never went in the garbage because we have such a huge population and everybody always needs something, even yeah. if it's a beautiful box that I don't need anymore and I say you know what I don't have any more space I have like 20 30 people who say give it to me I could use it so I always you know even a broken suitcase um, somebody says I can put it under my bed and use it for storage Mm -hmm. it's no longer a suitcase so I actually feel guilt-free because if I don't uh, have any more use but somebody else does and for them it's like a very important aspect it's not like trash yeah they genuinely feel oh my god I've got this leather suitcase because the wheel is broken she's not using it but I'm not traveling ever and I need it in my home to you know keep my woolies or whatever they have so in that context how did you approach these big corporations which we all know have so much extra yeah and I would love to know more about that America is, America and other wealthy countries have this problem. And right. most of the world doesn't, though, because most of the world can't afford, no, like no. you were saying, to waste. You know, when I was in India, there were so much repair shops, which I loved seeing. You know, you, 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 Are you kidding me? Yeah. You know my Loro Piana shoes, which I use for comfort, and they're so exorbitantly expensive. Mm. And the sole broke. And I went to Loro Piana and they looked at me and said, no. And I said, I'm not throwing these expensive shoes. I've had them for 10 years. And I took them to India and they fixed it on the street. Yes, they exactly. They put a new exactly. sole. And I've been so excited. I carry everything back and everything is repaired. It's a, And it's part of the culture there. Yes, like, it is. Which I love to see. And we, we've lost a lot of that. Um, it's a shame because a lot of times it's cheaper in the U.S., 
to throw it away than to repair yes. it. You're absolutely yes. right. And I think that that's, that's a huge issue um, that like that should also be addressed with legislation. No, I agree. I completely yeah. agree because I, by the way, I'm going to confess I carry a lot of stuff back to India, suitcase full of my broken stuff. I get it fixed and I come back. Mm. and Or I leave it there and I say, guys, let's fix it and you can use it. Yeah. But I, I just cannot believe I'm throwing it away and I keep saying... Well, I remember how much I paid for it and it was like you save and then you bought it, then why should I throw it? It's not part, yeah, it's not part of our culture. I think um, there's also this movement called the right to repair. And it's interesting that has to do with sometimes electronics where Apple used to have a monopoly on repair. So if you had an Apple product, you had to take it to an Apple store. And there were a lot of advocates saying, well, why can't I repair this myself? Why can't I take it to like a non-Apple store? Why do, you, why do you have a monopoly on it when I bought this product? Um, and then as a result of that advocacy, they've, they've loosened some of the repair stuff, um, making nice. it so other people can repair it. And the same thing with farming equipments. So farmers are also part of the right to repair movement because they're like, why is it that I can't repair the farm machinery that I bought? Why do I have, mm -hmm. I have no options available? Um, and that's, it's a big issue where brands don't let people learn or have control over repairing the products. Um, there's that barrier. And um, I think we need to design or corporations need to start designing with repair in mind, which doesn't make a lot of sense for them, unfortunately, right? Because for them, they would rather you toss it and then buy a new yeah, one. And that is the consumerism yeah. that we talk about. And I, I see that more because, uh, you know, I live in India and I always tell them, nothing breaks there for me. How come it keeps breaking mm. over here? And I guess because they keep getting it repaired. My microwave breaks down. I have it repaired. The washer, the dryer, it's like... And I also tell everyone just buy local products and don't buy a pole and pole anything because we'll have to pay arms and legs to get it from Germany. We don't have a repair person. You have to mm. fly that person down. Mm. And I said, always look at who's going to be able to fix your product. I love that you look at that before you purchase that's oh amazing. I do it's yeah. like every time people yeah. tell me I oh I have a somatic kitchen I have a bogan bowl I tell my staff what is the local shop that we have what is that local product yeah I said find out how many mechanics we have I said you don't want this nightmare yeah but with the food which is the other huge issue in the world today I read that you know you come across a lot of uh, unused food, mm -hmm. whether it was Dunkin' Donuts or CVS or these beautiful packaged food packets. Yeah. And you took them out of the trash. I mean, that really hurts because I actually always feel there's millions in this world today who are going without one meal a day. Yeah. So how do we solve that, you know, as in can, can we donate all this food to them? How does it work? Yeah, that was something actually part of my Jewish education that I remember is um, that we have enough food in the world to feed everyone and it's a matter of the mm -hmm. distribution of the food. So in the U.S., 40% of the food that we have is wasted. So 40%. It's, it's massive and it occurs throughout the entire um, supply chain. So it's, you know, on the fields, oh at God. distribution centers, at grocery stores, and then at the consumer level, the individual level also. Sometimes I think it's a lack of creativity where I find so many bananas 
um, in the trash. Always bananas that are like bruised or over a little, maybe overripe a little bit. And it's like, well, can we then connect them with someone making banana bread? Can we connect them with a smoothie shop so that they can freeze them? We're, we're not being creative enough with the solutions for it because they're still totally edible. Um, and then also we have this like baked fresh thing where we, we need everything to be fresh, which I also like. I like a fresh bagel. I like a fresh donut. But what happens is that they overproduce that to have it available at all times. And then when it's no longer fresh, they toss it. So the, these Dunkin' Donuts, I think it's a great example of this because, you know, it's a, mostly a franchise business. Um, but the owners have to have a certain amount available at all times. And that leads to waste. Um, they arrive frozen. They're not like made fresh back of house. And so keep them frozen. Don't defrost them. Don't heat them up um, so that we can avoid that waste. But most Dunkin' Donuts stores have two trash bags full of donuts and bagels and pastries um, at the end of the night. And I once took them home and they weighed like 50 pounds. Oh, so gosh. It's, it's massive when you're looking at the scale of something like Dunkin' Donuts. Um, so yeah. And then the, also there's so much bread overproduced and that's another thing where maybe we can, maybe those places that are overproducing, like create a bread pudding, have that on your menu and use that day old bread to make bread pudding, make, make a nice savory stuffing, something like that. Um, and I just don't see them doing it. So there could be these creative solutions, but the root issue is overproduction. One in seven um, people in the U.S. are food insecure. It's having too much because with the 40% of the food that's wasted in the U.S., we could solve food insecurity and we would still have too much food. We would have too many calories that wouldn't be healthy for all of us to consume. So the root issue is overproduction. And that's something that we need to be, I think we need to be talking about. It's like, yeah, you might go to a store and have fewer variety of bagels or donuts. And that that needs to be okay. Um, I agree. Yeah. I, I love the fact that, uh, you know, a young 30-year-old has the same opinions as me at 60. <laughs> because I started thinking my views were redundant over the years because... Um, I remember my mother um, would, you know, remove the, the sides of the bread, uh, you know, to make school sandwiches and say, but I remember very clearly that they would be drying in the sun and then she would pound them and have them made into breadcrumbs. Mm, yeah. In fact, if I ever, I remember being punished if I threw food in the garbage and she would always tell me, why did you throw it? Do you know how many people are starving? Mm -hmm. So only take what you can consume. Yeah. And if it's in your plate, then you finish it. Yeah. You do not throw. So it's it's become almost like part of a culture saying take second helpings, third, but make sure it is small quantities, only what you need. My uncle, um, who grew up with his father living um, a very difficult life and being in Poland during the Second World right, War, right. and he would never let my uncle leave food on his plate. And right. so None my of us were allowed. Yeah, my uncle still, he can't leave any food on this plate. And I think that there is that culture, and that's applied to individuals, but it doesn't seem to be applied to corporations. You know, we, we have this 
for individuals, it's like finish your plate, make sure there are hungry people, you know, out there. That that is kind of a a trope that you know I think a lot of parents use with their children. But then let's look at corporations. Let's look at what corporations are doing, and let's apply that same. And the numbers are so huge for the corporations. It's huge. It's huge. Like Dunkin' Donuts alone, I did a like a back of the envelope calculation, and very mm -hmm. conservatively, it's like half a billion pounds of donuts and pastries and um, bagels that they waste every year. Oh my God. Very conservatively. If it's 50 pounds a day times the number of stores that they have in the U.S. Right. times the number of days per year, um, it's it's a huge amount. And so I, I've just been thinking about that lately. It's like, it's a, also this American thing of we have... Corporations are exempt from morality, I kind of feel. Like, yes, corporations yes. can do whatever they want to do. Right, because then they fund our political system. Yeah, that, that's another, like, that's root, a whole. That's a so, root issue also, right? So, so for yeah. me, I, I, I know, and I wouldn't even go there, but that's how I always feel that, you know, whether it's cigarette companies and tobacco companies, yeah. and it's all about plugging in. And what you're doing is a movement, which is why I admire, because you can't fight everything at every level. And the awareness that you are creating is so important that you have shown that you've made these choices of life you are literally going through the trash, finding things, discovering it. You have this amazing vintage wardrobe mm -hmm. uh, of, of people just throwing clothes away. And um, it, it, I'm not saying everyone would be able to go through the trash and yeah. find the right things. But if every person holds, you know, a job even and says, why are we throwing this away? Yeah. How can we use it? Can we find another organization to team up with and send this product, you know, in a cheaper fashion, say to um, Asia or Africa, anywhere where there is a need for all this extra food. But the planet is one. Yes. And whatever we do is affecting everyone. So if you could tell me a little about the climate and the environment and just never have plastic yeah. because I'd be the first one to be happy without it. How does the world, you know, learn to live without plastic? Yeah, there's there's a lot there. There are, I would say, with there are innovations with materials, which I think is cool. So um, there's a company called Lollyware that's making um, straws out of seaweed. And wow. Yeah, which is very seaweed is a great material because it's carbon sequestering yes, and you don't need like fertilizer to grow it and you just need to you need to make sure you're farming it in the right way. Mm -hmm. Um and so like that design to disappear is like their tagline um where yeah, if we are going to continue using single-use items they should be made of sustainable materials like seaweed. Um, and they should, if they end up in the ocean, which hopefully they would not, mm -hmm. um, they should be they should be disappearing into the ocean. They shouldn't remain. So plastic as a material, just like it, it physically doesn't make any sense to use it's as a single use material. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It it lasts forever. And like I said, it just becomes smaller and smaller pieces of plastic when it breaks down. So it doesn't it doesn't return to the environment naturally in the way that like a that wood would or that seaweed would or other types of materials. I worked at the investment bank and we would create these different pitch decks of 
or like um, these presentations for selling corporations. And part of it would be looking at market research for what are the trends of the industry. And the trends of the industry for fashion at that, at that time, which I think would be the same now probably, were it was of infinite growth. It was of growth of maybe 5% per year. And I went to Adama and we watched The Story of Stuff, which I really recommend. It's a short, like seven minute documentary on YouTube about the take, make, waste model that we have, which is like the linear economy. And I really started thinking about that, that whole assumption of infinite physical growth and being like, this just doesn't, it's, it's a physical impossibility to have infinite growth on a finite planet. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a quote that I like of, you know, anyone who believes in infinite growth is either crazy or an economist. You know, it's like- I love that. Yeah. <laughs> you can't, you can't have infinite of like, you can have infinite growth of different types, but infinite growth of physical stuff on a finite planet is just a physical impossibility. And like that really set in for me. It's like, we just can't, we need, we can't continue doing what we're doing. They have these like world overshoot days where, um, which is usually over the summer. And it's at what point have we used all the resources um, that the earth can regenerate in one year? And so we're using it by the summer. So we're basically in debt to the earth. We are overspending, overdrawing mm -hmm. the earth's resources. So well um, put. And it's not the same for every country. So the U.S. has would have an earlier overshoot day. India would have a later overshoot day. And so we're not spending the resources, the, the finite resources of the earth equally. Um, and some countries are contributing more, like the U.S., like countries that, you know, that extract a lot of oil, like Saudi Arabia and Russia and Canada also. Those countries that have been drawing more resources have a debt to pay for the countries that have not been. We are, we are overspending their resources. I, I mean, I'm trying to think about it in financial terms, maybe, to explain it, because it is, it is what people are talking about, and we need to be talking about, our climate reparations. Climate change is very unfair and one of the ways it's unfair the most i think is that the countries that contributed the least are going to be impacted the most the most absolutely. and so certain island nations where it's not like they've been consuming at the rate of the u.s um it's not like they've been extracting oil from their land they've just been living and living in american standards it would be modestly and so they're the ones that maybe won't be able to continue to live on their land and very soon they're going to experience more intense droughts more intense heat waves and we need to start talking about the wealthy nations that have benefited from infinite extraction um, paying for those nations for climate resiliency for climate migration we're about to face this huge refugee crisis, climate refugee crisis yes. of a size that is very hard to imagine. Um, and we've already seen in Syria and Ukraine how, as a whole, we don't handle refugees well at all. Um, countries are not welcoming. And we need to start talking about that too. We need to start talking about, well, we are going to have 
millions and millions of climate refugees who can no longer, farmers who can no longer be on their land because it's no longer farmable, um, people who can no longer, people whose homes get destroyed in extreme weather events that are going to become more common. And what, how are we going to support them? Because it's really unfair that they're the ones who, have, who are going to be suffering in places that have contributed the least. Very true. And, and you know, as I say, I, I, I've lived 40 years now in the United States, grew up in India, I'm back and forth. But for me, it's a stark reality every time I go back to India where I just see every single piece is reused. Mm -hmm. Not that consumerism hasn't come into its own mm -hmm. with the wealthy and affluent in India. But even within that, I see people trying to say, well, if one car is going, why do you have to take the second car? Mm -hmm. You know, that everyone's saying two people can share the car. You don't have to take each one if you're going in the same destination and the same direction. Yeah. But there has become that awareness of even uh, amongst the very wealthy. And that was uh, good to see because they're trying to educate themselves. The middle class, the poor, I wouldn't say that because it's always been where they use, you know, even to wipe a kitchen counter, they use fabric yeah. and then they wash it yeah. and then they dry it and reuse it, you know, many times. Yeah. But um, paper towels and paper napkins are not encouraged. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I always loved, you know, pads of paper near my telephone, but my mother would say that, well, you've used all this other paper so you can clip it together and use the other side to write as a pad. And I said, but it distracts me, I'm dyslexic. And mm. she would say, yeah, but just draw a line through it. And I had to use the other side for little notes. Mm. But it was just inculcated yeah. that if you're just throwing something away, think if you can reuse it. We as humans are seeing it and we're just like standing by and we are destroying it. It's not the planet has done anything. Yeah. We're just saying... There's so much of forests and water. We're just going to take, take, take. Yeah. And we're just not around. So let our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren suffer mm -hmm. our consequences. And I think that's a little selfish. Oh, it's so selfish. I think also, I think that's one of the things, right, with the financial system of we have this quarterly rep reporting for profits. And... I just think about time a lot as a variable and how our sense of time is so out of sync with the Earth's sense of time. What is three months in the Earth's sense of time? You know, the Earth, three months in the Earth's history is a small decimal that right. I can't even... It's so insignificant and so inconsequential. Um, and yet we're measuring success as a three-month marker for corporations. Um, and so I think that is one of the issues is that we're so focused on short-term profit and we can't be focused on short-term profit. We have to be more aligned with the earth. And the way to do that is looking at long-term and some cultures do that. Some cultures look seven generations into the future. Like when you make a decision, you have to consider that makes sense. seven generations from now. What are they going to be, you know, going through and make decisions with that in mind? We don't make decisions with any future generations in mind, in my opinion. Um, that's not like that's not something that when corporations are like, should we extract this oil? Should we um, privatize this water? 
should we use the way in which we use water, I think is also super wasteful in the US. I don't think we consider past generations or future generations. And if we looked at past generations, we'd be like, it'd be our grandparents or great grandparents. And they'd be like, if they were alive now, they'd be like, I can't believe how wasteful this is. In my oh, in my day, we didn't do that, and I think that you know, I I, yeah. I remember my great grandmother when I was sixteen, and I remember she would always say that you know, and she had long hair. She said, "I managed to wash my hair in one bucket of water." Mm. She used to tell me, "Why do you need three? Mm. And I used to say, "I do because because," and she used to say, "No, you should know how to use exactly how much you need." Mm. And I remember asking about many things like, oh, but why should I only have this much? It's not like I'm poor. And she says, not about having poor or being rich. It's about what you need. Mm. And it was so inculcated that take what you need. So even now if I go to a restaurant and everyone's ordering food and I keep saying, but we're not going to finish that. So let's just order what we need. Yeah. You know, and, and it's like become my mantra that always just order what you need. I'm not going to have more than this, so let's just have this one dish. And there it says you could take it back. But it's almost, I feel what you're saying, and I'm saying the same, uh, that if we are all aware, and those people work in corporations, that we all need to only do what we need and what is required to sustain, then we could give back and slow down the destruction mm-hmm. of the planet. Yeah. And maybe even allow her to regroup and to re-energize. Yeah. And lastly, I want to ask you, because I read somewhere, you find it almost very meditative. I do, yeah. And zen-like to yeah. go on these trash walks, and I want you to share that with me. It's, so, I have a, I have a lot of fun doing it. It's kind of like um, a de-stressing activity for me of walking around my neighborhood. And you said it's a scavenger hunt at the beginning. That is what it feels like. And you just don't know what you'll find. And you're kind of, I feel like I'm in flow where I'm doing something that I really enjoy. And maybe it's like a little challenging sometimes, or you still have to be alert to it. But I... I can go on trash walks for hours and it just doesn't feel like that much time has passed. Um, and it's, I, I, when I started this, I would go solo and now I've made some trash friends, um, like people who I really met through trash. Um, and we go together and it's fun. It's, it's a fun communal bonding activity. Um, and I think it's also, I think it's good for more people to see what's out there to like, I think, I think it, it is very visual. You have to, to see entire. Oh, I've seen your photographs. Yeah. Great. Yeah. It's, it's very, so to experience it, I think is, can change the way you then look at purchasing at the way that you look at the systems that we're in. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's meditative for me. It's like a de- it's a de-stressing activity. Um, so it, it's I think for people who thrift or who antique or who go to like you know flea markets, um, th- they probably experience something similar. And it's like that's what I'm doing, but in the trash. So um, well, that's yeah. that's really well put. But also you are doing it because you're holding every single company and every single individual accountable. And it starts with that. It starts with accountability 
educating ourselves. Uh, I've learned a lot today from what you've been saying. Oh, I'm glad. I'm and glad. and um, and it's also heartening to know that you and your friends are making this difference. So I so look forward to seeing you grow and Thank you. make more of this project and um, make Manhattan for one definitely more trash-free mm. because I, I know that you're doing the work with the city council as well. And so, you know, my very best congratulations on being this amazing warrior queen like all the warriors that we look forward to having our women going out and making that difference. Mm. Thank and, you, Mr. Um, thank you. And any last note to our audience from you? All of this is overwhelming, I think, and it's overwhelming for me. And I, I think do what you can with what you've got. You know, everyone can do whatever they can with what, whatever circumstances that they're in. And so it, it's not to say there, there's a huge need for systemic change. Um, individuals can contribute in both like what they do in their personal lives and what they do in terms of voting um, and voting for people who care about climate change and have plans to mitigate climate change. Um, and it could be people talking to their city council. It could be trying to implement a municipal composting system where they live. It could be trying to understand more about recycling and set up maybe local recycling systems. Um, we need more domestic recycling in the US. So I just think that there's, there's a lot of room for people to get involved in whatever way that resonates with them. So um, both on an individual level, I personally, um, I don't use single-use plastic water bottles or single-use water bottles um, except in places where the water is not safe to drink. Because I feel like, okay, if you don't have a place that... I don't want to jeopardize my health. Absolutely. Um, and if there isn't water infrastructure, then you need plastic water bottles or single-use water bottles. But that's really where it should be reserved for. Um, so it could be small choices like that. And it could also be the larger things of trying to make systemic change. Um, it could be talking to your local CVS and asking the manager, hey, I know of a charity that would like to accept these items. Can we set up a donation partnership? They probably will say no, but I think that's, you could say, that's a starting point and add, adding the pressure to the corporations by speaking with managers and asking for, for them to do better. Thank you so much, Anna. So we were joined today by Anna Sachs and we look forward to the trash walker scavenger hunts and following you on TikTok and social media and seeing how we could help you in making that difference. Thank you, Mr. Thesai, for having me. Take care.